Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Today's word comes with a warning. I don't love crying. I don't love it in public. But it's pretty much all I've done on and off for two weeks. Ask my kids, I'll be mopping and just crying. Not because I have to mop, although (laughs) that's fair. But because God's actually dealing with me. I don't even fully understand what he's doing. But I know he's faithful and trustworthy. And so I just want to allow him to do whatever he needs to do. And I wonder if you could take that posture with me today. Maybe you don't fully understand how he's moving and what he's doing. But he loves you and he wants good for your life. And even if you're in this room today and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, most people in this room have been there. And I'm believing that as I share Jesus' word, as I share what he's doing in my life, what I believe he's doing in the church right now, that you would fall in love with our lover, that you would find who we have found, that he would become your greatest treasure like he is mine that he would become your anchor, your stability, your foundation. And so just even here, if you don't know Jesus, just open your heart. What have you got to lose? Nothing to lose. So church, I want you to open your Bible with me today. I'm going straight for the heavy hitter. Revelation. (laughs) Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read to you from verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If Jesus were to write a letter to Numa Church today, what do you think it would say? If he was to come in a vision, like he did to John, and say, get your pen, John, write this down, send it to the church, what do you think he would say? What we've just read together is a letter from the risen Christ, the risen Saviour Jesus, addressing the strengths and weaknesses of the seven most prominent churches of the day, the first of which was the church in Ephesus. John received this vision when he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. They had tried to execute Martyr John. They'd put him in a vat of boiling oil to try and kill him, but he survived. 
And here we find him exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Chapter one tells us that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, having a vision on the Lord's day. When he heard a voice like a trumpet behind him saying, John, take note, write this down. I've got something to say to my bride. This was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who used to lay on Jesus' chest, who would have heard our Saviour's heartbeat, look closely at his face, known every detail of him. And yet here, John sees that Jesus, Jesus appears in such a form that it causes John, the one who knew him the best, to fall down like he was dead. Jesus appeared with hair white like wool, eyes of fire, feet like burnished bronze, face radiating with glory like the sun. And John's response was to fall down. And this first letter to the church in Ephesus is to a church that John would have, would have actually been very familiar with because John was actually the bishop in Ephesus. He ran the church in Ephesus for a period of time. We know from Acts 19 and Acts 20 that it was Paul who planted the church in Ephesus. He stayed there for three years to establish the work. When we read 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul, spiritual father, was writing to his son Timothy, who he left in charge of the church in Ephesus. This was a very significant church, the original megachurch, about 5,000 people. Not just was it a significant church, this was a significant city. It was the greatest port of exchange where boats would come in and out with goods. It was an economic center in the culture of the day. Not only that, it had a huge temple to the goddess whose name was Artemis. And she was the goddess of hunting and the goddess of the moon. People would come from all over to worship at her temple. Not only that, but there was also a huge amphitheater that seated 20 to 25,000 people where there would be theater, plays, sporting events. That very amphitheater was the place where Paul stood his feet first proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles and the church was birthed. So this was a religious center. It was a cultural center, an economic center. And this is who Jesus is writing to. We also know from Acts that the revival that happened there caused a bit of trouble. So many people were getting saved that the idol makers were getting upset because they were going out of business. So many people were getting saved out of the occult, out of magic arts practices that they were bringing their books filled with spells and cantations, etc., piling them up in the center of the city and having a group burning ceremony. To say the spiritual atmosphere was intense might be a slight understatement. Those books that they bought and burned, historians tell us, would be worth today six million US dollars. This was a people so in love with Jesus, they burned what they put value on. I notice here revival is messy and not everyone loves it. Those who've held positions of power, pushing their idols, their cultural idols on us, they don't love it when God moves, causes revival in his people. And so when Jesus first addresses this church, John's heart would have beat a little bit faster. Yeah. It's my church. Yeah. 
He's talking to my church first. In every church, the culture always reflects the strengths and the weaknesses of its leader. You think about what was John's big idea of his life in the Gospels, 1, 2, and 3 John. His big idea was love. John was the love doctor. And here is Jesus choosing him to reveal this letter to his church. Hey, you know how they were red hot fire in love with me? Well, they're not anymore, John. And I need you to write this letter to them. And so our passage begins with Jesus commending the church in Ephesus for their deeds and their theology. Things they were doing very well. But apparently, according to our scripture, God wants our hearts more than he wants our works. Everything that was said about their deeds was good. It pleased Jesus. They'd been working, they'd been toiling, they'd been enduring patiently, they were bearing up, they weren't growing weary, all good things. In fact, often things that we think are signs of spiritual maturity. So Jesus says, tick, 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 yes, you've got all that right. Then he speaks to their theology. You are recognizing the difference between good and evil. You're testing apostles. You're refusing liars from coming into the community. Again, good things. And we think sometimes that the deeper our theology is, that again, that's a sign of spiritual maturity, but apparently it's not all that Jesus is after. Because he says the church lacks one thing. Your fervor has faded and you've slipped into a pattern of going through the motions. They were doing everything right, but verse four says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. This word abandoned means to let go, to cancel, to dismiss, to quit. In the legal sense, in the culture of the time, it meant to divorce. So the bridegroom was writing to his bride and saying, you've divorced me in your heart. Your heart doesn't love me the way it used to. And you've divorced me. It's interesting in verse two, I want you to look at your Bible with me. I know your works. He knew their works, he knew them well. Jump to four, keep your finger on verse two. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. We could read this passage and go, the problem is works. Works in and of themselves aren't the problem. It's the motivating force behind the works. Jesus is saying, why are you doing everything you're doing? It's meant to be an overflow of your love for me. Jesus is contrasting here the works of ministry and the work of intimacy. Have you noticed intimacy takes work? The longer you've been married, the louder you should be hollering right now unless you're afraid of your wife. The longer you've been saved, the harder you have to work at your intimacy. Once the honeymoon period is over, intimacy takes work. And Jesus is saying here, my preference is that it's the work of intimacy, that what flows out of that is the work of ministry. 
Your love has shifted. And on the outside, it looks like you're doing all the things, but you and I know something in your heart's shifted. Something in your heart's not right. In fact, sometimes we're slow to the uptake. Sometimes we're slow to recognize and it takes that pressing of the Holy Spirit. You've fallen from your first love. It's when duty takes over from delight. It's when we start to live like I have to, when at first we lived like I can't believe I get to. It's when pure devotion becomes going through the motions. And it's subtle and it's insidious. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit today. This is why we need to listen for His voice louder than mine. Do you know it's not uncommon for some of us to be going through the motions right now? I was reading about this the other day. It's really interesting. It helped me a lot. I'm believing it's going to help you. There are over 90% of us in this nation right now who are undiagnosed with what is called crisis fatigue. What is crisis fatigue? It's when you hear so much about huge, big, catastrophic things happening in the world that we begin to numb ourselves to cope with the pain and the stress of it, the uncertainty. Think about it, we've had COVID for two years. We've got the Ukraine. I'm in petrol, hello, Jesus, help us. Broccoli cost me $13. I mean, you gotta love your kids a lot to get those greens into them. We've got financial pressures. We've had a change of government. We've had floods. We've had fires. I stood on this platform recording a conference. There was an earthquake. Like when you list them all out, it's a lot. Then you add to that, I know there are people in this room right now who your marriage fell apart during COVID. When you couldn't have friends and family around you. I know there are people in this room who you didn't get to bury your loved ones and have that closure. I know there's people in this room who haven't seen your family in years because you couldn't travel. People here who lost their jobs. We've been through a lot. So what happens, it's human nature is that we numb our emotions. The problem is psychologists tell us this, you cannot selectively numb emotions. All our emotions are housed in the same little part of our brain. And so when we numb to cope with pain, stress and loss, rather than going to Jesus to help us through it, we actually numb our ability to experience joy, a sense of belonging in the community. Actually, we numb our ability to be soft towards the Lord, to hear His voice to live in intimate communion with Him. And so it wouldn't be uncommon for you to be sitting in this room today and the Holy Spirit's like, okay, now we're talking. Over 90% of you are probably suffering with this and it's affecting your relationship with Jesus. So welcome to the club. So Jesus has been talking to me. I'm gonna cry, but it's fine. He's been like running a movie in my life, showing me moments from the last couple of years. One of them was the COVID recordings. We would come in every week and record to an empty room. And the Lord said to me, Stacey, you did that for me, but you didn't do it with me. 
and I saw him standing over here on the side of the stage and he was cheering me on, like proud of me. I said, why are you over there? He goes, well, you didn't invite me up here. I'd taken on somewhat of a martyr complex. Oh, I'm working for Jesus. I'm toiling for Jesus. I'm not growing weary during COVID. No, not me. I'm not getting weary. It wasn't the most important thing to him. The most important thing to him was not what I did for him. But my time with him, that it was all overflowing from my first love. He showed me my quiet time in the last few years. 2019, laying on my face in God's presence, encountering him. And then I saw it move to me kneeling until I saw me this, this past couple of months sitting on a chair, sitting, surrounded by commentaries and all these knowledge books, which are all good, right? But I realized I'd started to care more what I knew about Jesus than actually knowing him. I'd fallen from my first love. He asked me, where's the 11 year old girl who went to her dad and said, dad, you need to call the Baptist Union because they say I'm too young to get baptized. I can love Jesus just as much as everybody else. So call them and tell them they got to change the rules. I had the rules changed for the Baptist Church of Australia so that you can now get baptized at 11. Bless you, Baptists. Where's the little girl gone who went to her dad and said, what do you mean I can't give my testimony before I go down into the water? Does it matter as much what Jesus says to me as he does to the adult? I want to testify. Dad being like, okay. And I get up and I weep like I am today at 11 because Jesus loves me. Because I love him. Where's that girl gone? Where's the nine-year-old with an NIV study Bible bigger than her entire body? Sitting on the bed, reading, reading, getting to know Jesus. Where's she gone? I've fallen from my first love. Where's that childlike faith gone that used to lay underneath my dad's prayer chair? And listen to him talk to Jesus. Where's the little girl gone who used to lay underneath the piano stool while her mum worshipped? Now I sometimes treat worship like a job. One of the greatest obstacles to revival is numbness of heart or apathy. Because revival requires appetite and hunger or we simply will not be able to pay the price that revival demands. Revival demands a price. And revival of the heart requires what I've just done before you, remembrance and repentance. Verse five of our passage says, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The way that this language is constructed, Jesus is saying, keep on remembering. Keep on thinking about, don't ever cease thinking about your first love and the things you did at first. When he says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen, this word fallen has a dual meaning. The first meaning is to collapse, to falter, to fall to destruction. 
That when we fall away from our first love, it leads to our destruction. But the other meaning is to fall down in intimate worship. So the word play here is that when we don't remember our first love and the things we did at first, we fall to our own destruction. When we do remember, it should cause us to fall on our face in intimate worship. In Ephesians 2, Apostle Paul is writing to these people we're reading about, remember that you were Gentiles in the flesh. Remember that you were separated from Christ, but you have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Numa Church, you were once separated from the love of Christ, but you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Do you remember what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus? When nothing was too much, nothing was too hard. When you couldn't stop worshipping, you couldn't stop reading the Bible, you couldn't stop talking to Him. You wouldn't shut up with all your friends about how good Jesus was. Because when you fall in love, you rearrange everything. My husband's home with our daughter who's sick today, so I have free reign on this story, so get ready. (laughs) Our first date, I want to talk about it for a moment. So he'd been stalking me for a good six months. And I mean, this is before the days of social media, so I'm in proper stalking. (laughs) Which I don't encourage. (laughs) So we met at basketball. He was coaching my little sister's team and um, I'd been asked to go pick up my sister because my parents were feeling sick and I had a really bad attitude until I walked in and saw him. And then I said, I'll go every week. (laughs) And he sent his brother in for recon. His brother, Bo, would come and talk to me every week. I'd be like, oh, that's nice, but when's your actual brother going to talk to me? And then after six months, the phone call comes in the days of landlines. So the whole family's like, whoa, he finally called. And I go running up and down to mum, uh, running up to mum and dad's room so I can have a bit of privacy. And as much privacy as you can get when your other three sisters are sitting around the bed like, oh my gosh, she finally called. And I'm jumping up and down on the bed and I'm like, hello, this is Stacy, playing it cool. And he says, oh, hey, I'm Jai. I don't know if you know who I am. I'm like, thanks, Captain Obvious. <laughs> I was wondering if you'd like to come out with me sometime and maybe we could go on a date. I try to play it cool. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, that should be okay. He goes, excellent, I'll pick you up in 15 minutes. And hung up. Now, maybe I should have been slightly concerned, like, how do you know where I live? And how are you getting here in 15 minutes when you live five suburbs away? But anyway. Did I have netball training? Yep. Did I have uni work to do? Yep. Did I have worship team practice? Yep. Did I clear everything? Yep. When you're falling in love, you'll rearrange whatever you have to rearrange. Are you rearranging everything for your time with Jesus or are you asking him to follow along in your busy and important life? Revival hearts turn away from things that dull our appetite for his word and for worship and steal our time from prayer. 
And falling away, however subtle, actually requires the word teachers repentance. As God started to press on these things, I'm like, well, it's not like big sin. It's like, it's the big one to me. My standards aren't the standards of the world. So while the church is jumping up and down about what they think the biggest sin is, Jesus is speaking to his church today and saying, how far have you fallen away from your first love? Because that's the big one to me. And if we pay attention to that, everything else will sort itself out. One of my favorite things to do is go to the beach. It's my happy place. And I go out past the break of the waves and I lay back and I allow the current to, to just gently move me. And if you stay out there for long enough, you actually end up a fair way down the beach. And sometimes we talk about falling away from our first love like that. We don't realize how far we've drifted. Last year on our family holiday, um, two of my boys were out in the water. They've been brought up going to the beach a lot, taught to surf, all the things. They know how to do all the things. But a rip came out of nowhere. And within 30 seconds, they were going under. And they had to be rescued by lifeguards. Can I tell you in 2022, it's no longer a slow drift with a current. It is a rip and it is pulling hard and fast. Which means we must keep on remembering our first love. We must keep on assessing if we are doing the things we did at first. You see, where there is revival, there will always be repentance. You can't have revival without repentance. And so one of the things that God is doing in my heart, which I can find articulation for, is I feel genuine remorse that I did that whole two years of leading here and I've missed out on aspects of who He is because I did it for Him like a soldier instead of with Him like a lover. I can't get that back. And that sense of sorrow and remorse is the beginning of repentance. Because then I said, well, you have to teach me a new way to think. And I turn and I learn to walk in a new way. And I know that part of this annoying crying thing is God's changing my heart. Yesterday's sacrifice doesn't work today. So when he is our first thought, our first priority, our first inclination, when we turn away from lesser things for the one thing, we have discovered the true spirit of revival. And when we return to our first love, our hearts are rekindled with the Holy Spirit's flame. What good is a lamp on a lampstand if it has no light? What good is a believer in a dark world where the rip is pulling hard? If you're not on fire, there's no flame in your lamp. And we keep the flame by returning and returning and returning and returning to our first love. You know, Israel was symbolized in the prophets of the Old Testament as a light to the nations. And in the New Testament, after the work of Jesus, this call was transferred to the church. We are intended to be a light to the nations. 
And the Holy Spirit lights the flame. Acts 1.8, you all know it. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, He will give you power for what? To have great revival meetings? He will come in power so you can witness, be a light to the world around you. In John, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, go and shine. And when we fall away from our first love, our flame becomes dull and we're just like the world. People can't tell the difference anymore. And this Numa Church, whether we're 95, 96 or 97 years old, can't do the math, 100 years in 2025, that'll be. We are a lampstand church in this nation and we have been since the start. The Assemblies of God Australia was birthed out of this church. This church has always been a well of revival. And I don't actually love preaching this message, but I don't really have a choice. God says if we do not return to our first love, He will remove our lampstand. That's Bible, not me. You know, if you follow the trail of your time, your money, your thoughts and your energy, it will lead you to what is really your first love. And God's been speaking to me about some of the ways I can learn to recognise when I've lost my first love. Let me share just a few. My head knowledge was outgrowing my heart experience. I was learning all the things and it's not wrong, but it was outweighing my experience of who Jesus is. I'd begun to read the Bible for information rather than formation. We get more excited about the call than the caller. More excited about operating in my spiritual gifts than the gift giver. We take a Judas posture in worship when we used to be Mary. Worse still, we're a Judas looking at the Marys going, what a waste, what an embarrassment. I wish we weren't going there as a church. All the nutters come out when there's revival. We're more focused on the appearance of our lamp than the intensity of the flame within. We talk more at Jesus than we listen to His voice. We impose our will onto Him. This is what revival looks like. This is the best plan for my life. Instead of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ever leave a prayer meeting and be like, something was off. Probably a whole bunch of people imposing their will on God and calling it prayer. Eek. Our sensitivity to sin decreases. We start to listen to things we didn't used to listen to. We start to watch things we didn't watch. Our appetites begin to change. We start to let our feet go places we know we're not meant to go. And our sensitivity to the things that grieve our Father's heart no longer grieve our heart. That's a dangerous place to be in. And the things that were once all about serving Jesus ministering to Jesus, become about serving me. 
How's the worship ministering to me? How's the word ministering to me? Instead of saying, how did we minister to God today? Was God exalted in our worship? Was God blessed by the word? And the church in Ephesus was a lampstand church. And it was to this original mega church that Jesus said, if you do not return to your intimacy, I have no choice but to remove your lampstand. What he was essentially saying to them is, I'm going to have to come and unchurch the church. Because without love first for God and then for others, by definition, we're no longer a church, we're a club. We can't be a church if our lamp has no light. Because the church has always been called to be an illuminating influence to the world around them, the people around us, to the culture. We're not meant to be informed by the culture of the world. And so if there's no light in our lamp, we're literally not a church. So stop calling us that and just make it something club. But when our flame burns with passionate love for Jesus, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your strength. And the next greatest, love your neighbor as yourself. Or as John puts it, the one receiving this vision, Jesus says it, John records it. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Do you know that just 10 years after this prophetic vision, this message given to John that the church in Ephesus did not exist. Can't find a trace of it within a decade. In other words, they didn't remember. They didn't repent. They didn't return. They didn't allow the Holy Spirit to rekindle. And so God removed. There would have been people who would have gone, this church will be here forever. It's been here forever, it'll be here forever. 10 years gone. And ultimately, our individual lifestyle choices, whether or not we want to be aflame with the Holy Spirit, they show us who God is to us and how hungry we are for Him. You see, personal revival in the few can spark a revival in the many. I don't need many of you with me this morning. I only need two or three. This thing can blow up. Many other people will get caught in the slipstream of your personal revival, and that's awesome, but I want to be a fire starter. If we make history with God in the secret place, God can make history through us. And this is the true measure of a person's heart for Jesus. The history that's created when no one else is watching. Our lives are shaped when there's no one going, great sermon, great worship leading, yay leading a life group. Our lives are shaped when there's no one cheering us on and we're on our face before Jesus. And God is inviting us into a new realm. Pastor Phil was saying last week, we're on the brink of somewhere this church hasn't been before. 
And when we're on the brink of opening a new realm, it will require sacrifice. Anointing is expensive. I'm not not gonna sugarcoat it. It's gonna cost you your whole life. It's gonna cost you relationships. It's gonna cost you finance. It's gonna cost you the approval of men. It's gonna cost you time. It's gonna cost you priorities. It may even cost you the understanding of your own family. But if we won't break it open and produce anointing oil, there can be no flame in the lamp. Verse seven says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Whether you like the way I present or not, that's all good, we've all got preferences, right? This is not me bringing this message. Can you hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today? God cares more about our love than our labor. God cares more about relationship with you than He wants results from you. You know, I'm so inspired by the story of revivalist Heidi Baker. Most of you will have heard of her. She lives in a nation called Mozambique. And when she first went there, she had a PhD in systematic theology. Impressive and important. But in the first few years, she struggled. It nearly took her and her husband out to plant two churches. And then they heard about something happening in a city called Toronto. So they rock up there at this Toronto thing. She gets powerfully touched by God. She can't walk for seven days. She's pushed around in a wheelchair for seven days. She describes it as an intense encounter with the love and power of God that marked her and changed her forever. That was 1996. Today, Heidi Baker has planted 7,000 churches. Started an orphanage that saved lives. Regularly raises the dead. Regularly prays for deaf ears to be opened and to hear and blind eyes to be opened. People ask her, what's the formula for resurrection? <laughs> Give us a wineskin. She like, pay for your own oil. Have that for free. Pay for your own wine. She says, I love them back to life. She has been known on multiple occasions to hold the bodies of dead babies in her arms and weep and travail over them, wetting them with her tears for hours until warmth comes back into their body and they are revived by love. Today there is available to you a revival of first love. Jesus is bringing dead hearts back to life. He's resurrecting dreams. He's resurrecting intimacy. He's resurrecting the lover you were 10, 20, 30 years ago. A woman changing a nation because she lays on her face for six to eight hours a day, receiving her instructions and guidance from the Lord. People say, Heidi, You could do a whole lot more with your life if you got off your face and got on your feet. She says, no, I can do nothing without being on my face. And so here was a woman who prevented falling away by falling on her face in worship. Let's not miss 
that it was John who received this word that we're reading about today, who would fall on Jesus' chest and worship. There's something about a laid down lover who'll fall down. That carries a spirit of revival. The team can come and join me because then we can pretend I'm finishing. No, I am. This past Wednesday night, Pastor Steve McCracken was ministering at Revival Night so powerfully, but Jesus was actually the most powerful minister in the room. And I was on my knees here and I could, I could sense and, and see in a vision that Jesus was moving around the room and he was healing people and he was doing what only he can do. And then all of a sudden I saw his feet in front of me. And we were kind of talking without talking. And I'm praying about this message. Like, is it too fresh? Are you still doing it in me? Can I bring it yet? Like, what's the thing? He goes, Stacey, all I need you to tell them is I want my church back. I want my bride's heart back. I want her first love back. And so I wanna ask you today, where are you at? Do you remember what it was like when you first met Jesus? Are you willing to return to your first love? Are you willing to repent and say, God, I have fallen away and to make yourself available to be rekindled? So what we're gonna do in the next few moments is I'm going to offer myself afresh to God again. And I wanna invite you to join me. I'm gonna kneel right here. And you might wanna kneel in your seat. You might wanna come out and fill this altar and kneel. You're not responding to me. You're responding to the bridegroom who says, I want my church back. I want her heart back. So as you come and you take a posture, Jesus, would you help us to remember what we did at first? Help us to remember what it was like when we first met Jesus. Show us what it looked like when we first knew that we were loved. When we first had a revelation of the fact you hung on a cross for our sin, even though you were perfect, you did it for me. You did it for the, every person in this room. Show us afresh. And I thank you that it's your kindness that pulls us up and helps us to say, God, I'm sorry for where I've fallen where I've slipped into going through the motions. Forgive me. Teach me to think a new way. Help me to walk a new way. And Holy Spirit, come and rekindle every dwindling flame. Breathe on the coals of our heart. I thank you that we are returning today. We are coming back. We are coming back. We are coming back. This is a revival of first love. Will you not revive us again? 
Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.